Welcome to Energy Current. I'm your host Zhao Wang. It's great to have our guests today, Professor Mark Jacobson from Stanford University.、Uh, Mark,、uh, welcome to Energy Current. Yeah, thank you for having me on today.、Uh, Dr. Jacobson's academic career has focused on better understanding air pollution and climate change, and developing large-scale clean renewable energy solutions. He has developed and applied three-dimensional atmosphere, biosphere, ocean computer models and solvers to stimulate and understand air pollution, weather, climate, and renewable energy systems. His researches have been applied into making 100% renewable energy roadmaps for countries, states, cities, and towns. Dr. Mark Jacobson has been professor of Department of the Civil and the Environmental Engineering. At Stanford University、uh, since 1994. So、um, I know you have a new book published by Cambridge University Press、uh, in the beginning of this year.、Uh, I think this is a kind of summary, not only about your academic、uh, career, but also your personal journey. So, would you like to spend a couple of minutes to summarize what's the main point of this book? And I think that would be the good point for us to. Go further discussions. Yes,、yeah, sure. Well, the world is facing major problems related to energy.、Uh, there's air pollution, which kills seven million people each year and causes illness to hundreds of millions more per year. There's global warming, where where globally average temperatures have increased about 1.2 degrees Celsius since the 1850 to 1900 period. And there's energy insecurity. Uh, fossil fuels are limited resources; they will run out, and we do need to replace them before they run out. Otherwise, we'll face economic, social, and political instability. But there are also other types of energy insecurity, like some countries control the energy of other countries, and that results in、uh, economic crises when one country withholds the energy, for example. So this book is really to not only identify these problems, but identify solutions that we can implement rapidly and at low cost. And we need to implement these solutions as fast as possible.、Um, at least 80% by 2030, and 100% by 2035 to 2050. So that limits us to. So we can't develop. We can't be relying on new technologies that don't exist, and that we don't even know will exist. So we need to focus primarily on existing technologies. And fortunately, we have those existing technologies, namely wind, water, and solar electricity and heat. But also we have storage. We have electricity storage in the form of、uh, batteries and hydropower and pumped hydroelectric power, concentrated solar power,、uh, flywheels, compressed air storage, gravitational storage. We have heat storage in in water in water and underground、uh, soil and water pits and aquifers. We have cold storage in water and ice. We have some hydrogen storage. But we have these technologies, and so this book is really about identifying what the technologies are and arguing that we can. Use these technologies. We can implement them on a large scale to solve these three major problems rapidly. In fact, these this is really the only way we can do it.、Uh, we can't rely on other technologies that don't exist or or are not very helpful. Some of those other technologies that are not helpful, for example, carbon capture, direct air capture,、uh, bioenergy, blue hydrogen, small modular nuclear reactors or conventional nuclear reactors, geoengineering. Uh, so we, this book talks about what we can do and what we need to stay away from to solve these problems, 
And we don't need a miracle technology. That's the good news. And things are acting in our favor in terms of the, the technologies that we do have that are useful are coming down in cost. They're being implemented on a worldwide scale. And they are really clean and renewable. Okay, great. Thank you for giving us the general picture. Before we go into the details of this um, WWS, uh, mainly water and hydropower, uh, wind and solar, of course, combined with uh, uh, energy storage and the uh, grid expansion, I, I want to uh, ask you to uh, look back to the, this journey. I mean, you proposed this uh, idea uh, more than 15 years ago, if I'm right. So in the past 15 years, the energy transition and climate change policy has been uh, evolving greatly uh, in, in, uh, across the world. So you, your understanding about the 100% uh, renewable energy system has been changed a lot or uh, having some challenges and also um, how do you address those uh, challenges well, thanks. Uh, so our first plan was published in a journal well, in Scientific American, and it was a plan actually for the whole world to transition to 100% wind, water, and solar. And it, we didn't do individual countries, but we did a worldwide analysis. And what we found was, yes, it's technically and economically possible to transition, even back in, this was 2009, it's technically and economically possible, but for social and political reasons, a transition probably will take longer than expected. So originally thought, well, maybe by 2030, but then we thought that for social and political reasons, it may take longer, maybe up through 2050. But the actual ideas back then are similar to what we're proposing today. Namely, we'll use only wind, water, and solar generators, so onshore and offshore wind, solar photovoltaics on rooftops and in power plants, concentrated solar power, geothermal electricity and heat, hydroelectricity, small amounts of tidal wave power, some solar heat. Uh, so we have the same technologies. Storage is a little bit different. First, we were relying more on hydropower, pumped hydropower uh, storage, but also concentrated solar power was stored. And now we have a few more options. I mean, batteries now are competitive. Back then they weren't really competitive, so we didn't include them in our first studies, but now they're actually much more competitive and actually will take up probably most of, most of the storage solution. But there are other emerging technologies like uh, compressed air storage, gravitational storage with solid masses, and even flywheels for a small portion. Um, we had, you know, we were, back then we were assuming certain underground heat storage that still exists and you know, storage of heat and cold, uh, low cost heat and cold, so that's still there. Uh, also, hydro, well, hydrogen's gotten a little more attractive now. It used to be that, so we only propose using green hydrogen uh, all along. We never propose using blue or brown or any other color hydrogen, just green hydrogen from wind, water, solar, electricity. At first, we assumed it would only be used for long distance heavy transport and some industrial processes. Now we're looking at other processes like ammonia production, steel production. You can use hydrogen in it. And and maybe some remote microgrids for electricity or combine it and combine with batteries uh, for electricity grids. So those are the two things that are evolved. What's, so I, don't, I wouldn't say, you know, it's been incremental changes in what we propose. What's more interesting is how the utilities and, the, and other researchers have evolved. I mean, back in 2009, utilities claimed, well, we can't get more than 20% renewables on the grid without the grid collapsing. But you know, up till two, 
2017, that changed all the way to 80%. So we'd been talking about 100% renewables the whole time. And by 80%, the utilities and researcher, other researchers were saying, oh, yeah, I think we can do 80%, but not 100%. And then it was like 90% a couple of years later. <laughs> we do 90% on the grid. And then, you know, now this year, I mean, even the National Renewable Energy Lab in, in the U.S. says we can do 100% and it'll be lower cost even uh, than uh, fossil fuel system. So that's evolved quite a bit. Plus the costs of renewables, namely wind and solar, batteries, heat pumps, electric vehicles have all come down. That's been favorable. So what's actually happened is that things have become more favorable for our plans in terms of the economics of them and also social acceptance as well. And now you know, renewables and electric vehicles and heat pumps are becoming the norm. And that's what everybody's talking about. So I think it's been an evolution of thought uh, and actual impact on the ground. Things have been changing on the ground, driven by policies, uh, low costs, and just implementation where people can see their neighbors doing things and they want to do it too. You also mentioned about the policy. I think this is a very significant factor in the past 15 years. We, we see a lot of the policy changes. How do you assess, I mean, if we see the major players like EU, US, and China in the last few years, they really stepping up to try to work together uh, to promise to achieve uh, carbon neutrality by the middle of this century for uh, different levels, growth countries uh, is a different uh, year of target, target year. But do you think this kind of strategy or policy shift uh, play a big role uh, for the whole society uh, accept um, it's more possible to pursue 100% energy system by 2050? Yeah, it's interesting. Well, each of these regions has a different type of policy. So China has been implementing their renewables, wind and solar in particular, everywhere. And so they have the fastest growth or the greatest growth of wind and solar. Uh, and, you know, they're not, and the good thing is they're, you know, they're not a lot of lobbyists in the way of the implementation. So they can direct, you know, like new transmission, new wind farms, new solar farms, without uh, too much objection. And on the other hand, there's also still growth of coal and other fossil fuels. So we need to really stop that entirely, that growth and just focus on the renewables and also, but not only electric power sector, we've got to focus on uh, vehicles and industry and buildings to get them all electric as well. In the US, we have strong policy, but there's also strong lobbyists who get in the way and result in policies that are watered down. We have what's called an all of the above policy, which is let's just try a little bit of everything and hope something works. Whereas that that is not the best policy. Uh, we need to focus on what we know works, which is wind, water, solar, and storage, and not focus on things that we know don't work like carbon capture, direct air capture, blue hydrogen, bioenergy, small modular nuclear reactors, conventional nuclear reactors, and geoengineering schemes. You know, fossil like carbon capture, direct air capture, and blue hydrogen, for example, uh, they only, they're basically promoted by the fossil fuel industry to stay alive because they um, allow the fossil fuel industry to keep burning fuels and claiming they're capturing carbon from those fuels or capturing carbon from the air 
um, or like in the same thing in the case of blue hydrogen, which is just natural gas producing hydrogen, but using carbon capture. Whereas these are all dirty fuels because or dirty processes because they require 30% more energy than otherwise is needed. And that 30% energy either comes from a fossil fuel resulting in 30% more air pollution because carbon capture does not reduce any air pollutants. It only takes out CO2. So air pollution goes up 30%, results in 30% more mining of fuels and 30% um, and the extension of the fossil fuel industry. And it hardly reduces any carbon. And 75% of carbon that is captured is used for enhanced oil recovery to dig more oil out of the ground. And that results in 40% of that carbon dioxide going right back to the air. So these are just not good technologies. Bioenergy results in air pollution. And so it hardly reduces any carbon as well. And carbon capture and direct air capture hardly reduce any carbon. And the small modular reactors, big reactors, they take between like 10 to 21 years between planning and operation. In North America and Europe, it's 17 to 21 years. That's too late. We can't wait that long to solve a problem. But it's, uh, yeah, so we need to focus on what works and ignore and bypass these poor technologies that don't work. Yeah, this is a strong argument uh, from your uh, research. You know, America is the most developed market economy in the world. Even in the technology market, it also need to be competitive. So uh, even different technology have different external uh, costs, like environmental, social, and the health, public health costs, which are not included into the uh, economic uh, policy making. That's for sure, because uh, some companies and some sector do not pay their fair share for the environmental and the social damages, right? Health damages. And this is a long process, but has um, we put the climate as a key challenge for the world uh, and the climate uh, cost or uh, carbon cost has been discussed in many countries uh, in order to introduce into the uh, real policy making uh, as a carbon pricing uh, me mechanism. As long as uh, we still seek the market economy, uh, technology are competing to and meet the target and um, policy targets. At this moment, policymakers, governments have no right to select which technology is, is better than the other. They still have to give some space to the different technology to develop. If we look back to the 10 years ago when the renewable energy, particularly the solar and the wind, was still struggling to reduce its cost to compete with fossil fuels, particularly the, uh, the, the coal power generation. So my question is that in, in this market-based economies, uh, when the technologies have their own right to compete and uh, to become the next uh, tomorrow's technology to address climate change, how do you uh, say, okay, uh, you guys shouldn't be support? Uh, we, we still we already have the available technologies. We need to put all resources into uh, available technologies uh, I think this is a kind of dilemma for the policymakers to uh, to make. Uh, that's why in different platforms, even the UN system and also different countries, they also open the door to everyone. So how do you uh, well, share your ideas on this? Well, first of all, none of these technologies that I've mentioned that we should not use are competing in an open market. They're all being subsidized, and that's the only way they're even, even able to come close to competing. 
carbon capture is subsidized, direct air capture, uh, blue hydrogen, uh, small modular reactors, bioenergy, conventional nuclear is the most subsidized of any energy ever in history. I mean, they would, they're only propped up by subsidies everywhere. And, and also even more in, in uh, markets such as in China, in Korea, or in other in India, I mean, they're nuclear subsidized everywhere. So that's the only way it would not survive on its own. In, in France, France subsidized it up the hill. So that's the first thing. And second, we do have policies in place in many places to go to 100% renewable energy that does not allow for these other technologies. I mean, in, in the United States, there are, well, 19 states and territories out of, well, there are 50 states, and then there's you know, Puerto Rico, and then there's Washington, D.C., but um, 19 states and territories have laws to go to 100%, effectively 100% renewables and electric power. I mean, of those, though, I'd say more than half are actually just all they allow is renewables and they don't allow uh, anything else. And, you know, if they do, you know, they're one. So there are two ways to answer your question. First, we stop the subsidies to these other technologies. If they want to compete, let them compete in the open market. They won't they won't compete. They won't they won't last. And second, if we have policies or laws requiring renewable energy, then that's another way to get them out. Otherwise, we can subsidize the renewable energies and they, you know, there are actually many states in the US, nine of the 10 states in the US with the highest fraction of electricity from wind are in states without substantial, uh, any laws to go to 100% renewables. It's because wind is so cheap. So I think that we don't, the time is short. You know, if, if, if time were not an issue, and pollution and health were not an issue. Sure, let everything compete and, you know, but that's, we're trying to solve a problem. And when we try to solve a problem, we have to actually solve the problem. We can't just like try everything and hope something works when we know exactly what does work and what doesn't. I know the research application has been used in different countries, states, particularly in states. Uh, some uh, states who have very uh, ambitious uh, environmental target and climate targets. But, you know, the world is very uneven, uh, particularly under some uh, dis disruptions, like in the energy price crisis, even the European war between Ukraine and Russia. And for some countries like uh, India, even China, many parts of China, they still have kind of limit a capacity of uh, scaling up the renewables as soon as possible, as, as fast as possible. So how do you... Uh, propose like the Indian government uh, in fa facing the energy crisis, uh, geopolitical problem, and to continue, uh, I mean, follow the footsteps of the OECD countries to uh, transit its energy system uh, to 100% renewable as soon as possible. Well, any country that transition is going to save money, reduce health costs, saving even more money, reduce climate costs, saving even more money, create jobs, and in a lot of cases, actually reduce land use requirements and provide more economic, social, and political stability. So India, for example, I mean, you know, over a million people die from air pollution every year in the country. And this, and, and 
hundreds of millions more are ill, and this results in a huge cost. And so if the faster that India replaces its cook stoves, it's, you know, a lot of the deaths are actually due to indoor burning of biofuels and uh, like dung and wood and some other waste for home heating and cooking. Just replacing a, a, a biofuel stove with a, an induction, electric induction cooktop in a little community and providing and for all the homes in a community and providing a local microgrid with solar and a few batteries to provide that electricity, that would eliminate a lot of health problems and costs, provide more stability because I mean, how do people get that dung and wood? They, you know, they walk a long way to do it. And so first of all, it's it's healthier and it saves time that so people can be more productive instead of walking to, to uh, obtain energy. And then, so that's just one thing, but then, you know, India has a huge solar resource. They have a huge wind resources, including, including offshore wind. They are growing wind and solar substantially. And, you know, but going to heat pumps for uh, air heating and air conditioning, uh, electric heat pumps, going to electric scooters instead of you know, fossil fuel scooters. There are a lot of scooters and three wheelers in India, but a huge amount of air pollution. It's just more efficient. They, you know, electric transportation uses one third, one fourth the energy is fossil fuel transportation. So that saves a lot of money. Uh, and electric heat pumps save a lot of money compared to either wood or, or coal or gas heating. And so, and then there's jobs creation from putting solar on roofs and uh, you know utility scale plants. So every country that doesn't do this is just hurting themselves because they are not taking part in this economic boom. People only consider their short-term economic well-being not the long-term health benefits. So in the policymakers' idea, I mean, they have to make a balance. So how do you uh, respond on this? Well, I agree that people will, you know, are going to look at their how much how much money they're spending and, and taking in. That's their first priority. I will point out that health effects are immediate as well as long-term. I mean, if you look at the level pollution concentrations, particularly particles smaller than two and a half micrometers in diameter, there's a linear correlation between immediate hospitalizations and emergency room visits the same day as part pollution concentrations go up and also deaths. So you get a spike in death rates on the same day that you have high pollution concentrations. It's like somebody who's has a heart attack and polluted air is more likely to die of the heart attack than in clean air. And of the people who die from air pollution, there's 7 million people die from air pollution each year. Well, 20% of those are children under the age of five years old. And so these are not just long-term deaths, they're actually immediate and short-term illnesses and deaths, asthma is an immediate effect. But having said that, you're, you're right, people are often going to push off their own health issues because they, they're worried about getting a meal. And want to pay for it. So this is why the government needs to take the major role in a lot of cases in, in, in incentivizing a transition. So that means if people are going to put solar on their own roof, for example, if they have a roof, you know, to, to facilitate that through some kind of subsidies or short-term loans, um, or the, and there are solar companies who will just lease the solar. So when they're paying the, out the lease, they're paying the same rate of electricity as they would to the grid operator. Uh, so there are a lot of mechanisms that you can alleviate the burden on individual homeowner, but you know, having and incentivizing 
for example, electric transportation by putting charging stations. I mean, it's cheaper immediately for somebody to drive an electric vehicle in terms of the fuel savings. I mean, it uses one fourth the fuel as gasoline or diesel. And so you end up sp spending one fourth as much on fuel. But most people are worried about the range, you know, so having a scooter, for example, you don't want to be stuck in the middle of nowhere without a place to charge it. So that it helps to have government set up charging stations or incentivizing these charging stations. So I'm not saying there's an easy answer. We're not, we're not going to be able to just transition overnight, but there are ways, practical ways that these things can be done if we put our mind to it. The problem is we're too distracted with too many things that don't work. Yeah, the, the other important part of this uh, system I want to discuss is about the technology uh, availability and also the cost of um, implementing uh, those uh, new technologies or the existing technology, which are 100% renewable system required. And you mentioned a lot of examples, like uh, in aviation and in shipping industry, a lot of the prototype vehicles, they have been uh, invented, generated, uh, but haven't been uh, manufactured in the scale, in scale. So on the one hand, we have those technology, but which is in the early stage of the learning curve. On the other hand, we want to apply it as quick as possible in the big scale, in global scale. How do you see the, the gap between what we have now and that we should have, uh, particularly in the short period of time? Because those technology in, in those stage, they, they very, they're very expensive, right? If we implement it, uh, how can we make sure many low-income countries and even low, uh, middle-level countries, they have uh, their capacity to afford? Well, you know, we're spending, as I mentioned, $11 trillion per year, mostly on fossil fuels today. So if we shift that money to spend on renewables, then there you have it. All these technologies, you know, the more you implement them, the the more you implement them, their costs will drop due to economies of scale. And so they, some of them, some cases, yeah, they need to push by the government, government subsidies. Other cases, they'll, you know, just by, because they're already low cost, they'll get implemented quickly. And then the more they're implemented, their costs drop even further. This is what we've seen with solar and wind and even electric cars now. So I think it's more a question of, you know, determination and education. The more people are aware of what's possible and what's the benefits of what's possible, the more likely they're going to gear towards the shift. And the more the governments focus on real solutions, the more we'll actually implement those real solutions. You know, during World War II, the U.S. had hardly any airplanes and produced 300,000 airplanes in five years. Same, the world produced 800,000 airplanes in five years as well from virtually scratch. So, you know, if we set our minds to doing something, you know, we can do it on a, if we think that it's an emergency. Oh yeah, that's very interesting analogy. I mean, in the, in the wartime, uh, the whole society is totally uh, um, operating in different way. Uh, and, and uh, you know, uh, you, you talk a lot about political willingness and um, I think this is a very significant in, in most uh, democracies because all policies cannot uh, be decided by a top leader, one person, in, in, like um, in other countries. But in most OECD countries, they have to go through this bureaucratic and democratic processes. And for those who are still in the fossil fuel industry, they, they fear they might lose their life livelihood. And I know the 
uh, Inflation Reduction Act passed in August last year was a kind of the uh, achievement by uh, some uh, senators who have strong connection with the fossil fuel industry, like the uh, Senator Manchin in the West Virginia. Uh, his basis is from the coal mining and the coal power. So just transition is becoming more uh, concerned, more important for policymakers. So in this process, when we achieve the 100% renewables, we have to consider those who might face uh, these challenges. But how do you uh, think about the trust transition in, in this sense? Well, we estimate that it will create worldwide 28 million more long-term full-time jobs than lost. In the U.S., it's like three to four million. China is a lot of many million too. So even though there will be some jobs lost, more jobs will be gained and that will help more people but even the jobs that are lost, I mean, a lot of these workers can be retrained in other energy industries. In fact, in West Virginia, you know, they're building, you know, going to build uh, their manufacturing plants for solar and other renewable energy technologies, um, wind turbine manufacturing, uh, off, offshore oil rig drillers can shift to offshore wind energy because they use sometimes similar platforms. So it's going to be there be a struggle for some people, but on the other hand, there'll be more people brought out of struggle, and a lot of those people who lose their jobs will regain jobs, and hopefully most all of them. Um, so, and I don't think we can not do this transition for the fear because of the fear of what might happen in that case. We need this transition for the betterment of society and actually solving these large scale problems that, if unabated, will really cause much more harm in the long run. So from this uh, point, do you feel uh, positive, uh, optimistic about the energy transition in the next uh, 10 years in, in your country and in other big eco uh, economies? I'm, well, I'm optimistic that first, I know it's possible that we can do it. And then we have the technologies. We have 95% of the technology we, technologies we need right now and the rest we know how to do. And there are a lot of things in our favor in terms of lower costs. Costs keep dropping for, on average, for you know wind, solar, batteries, heat pumps, electric induction cooktops. You know, just electrified industry, and the political and their people are more aware and more supportive than ever of transitioning to renewable energy. I think more than eighty percent of people from, I've seen one international poll of thirteen countries. 26,000 people, I think it was around 82% of people supported 100% renewables. And I've seen other polls that are similar. So we, you know, there is popular support and even the fossil fuel industry, a lot of them are trying to transition a lot of, or they're hedging their bets and they're also investing in renewables. They realize that change is coming. So whether I think it will happen, I'm, not going to say that, but I'm going to say that it definitely can happen, and a lot of things are in our favor. And I, I'm going to work as hard as I can. All we can do is the best we can. All, all, all that's going to happen is the best we can do. Are we? we yes. Do more than <laughs> try to go to 100. percent So yes. I think, yeah, we have to keep trying, and if we try, we may succeed. But if we don't try, we definitely won't succeed. Yeah, you mentioned about the education. I agree with that. Uh, uh, the, as far as we can do, we can educate ourselves day by day. Uh, year mm -hmm. after year to become more engaged and also more wise uh, to to address this uh, challenge. 
So we are coming to the end of this episode. I'm really happy to uh, talk about the, uh, your research work. And as a routine, I also would like you to share a nonfiction book that you just read and why you think the book is a good read and why you want to recommend the book to our audience. Well, this book um, actually that I read recently was, I can't say it was nonfiction, but it was, I'm sorry, it was yeah, it was yeah, it was nonfiction. It was about the history of the history of the Earth in seven chapters. It was <laughs> it was a, basically a, a biological and geological history history of the Earth, and I thought it was really interesting. I mean, I teach a class on on air pollution where I discuss the history of the Earth, and so this was actually very up to date, enlightening from an expert geologist. Okay, um, great. The The title is uh, History of the Earth in Seven Chapters. Yeah, I don't remember exactly the words, but there's something like that. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> but the, the title is usually uh, remembered. I think uh, yeah. it's a comprehensive uh, analysis of the, the Earth history. You, as you mentioned, different uh, subjects of the science. Uh, that would be great if our audience can check it out. And uh, thank you so much for your time. And it's really uh, great to have you uh, on our podcast and I hope uh, we can uh, catch up again uh, and uh, in the future we can have more learning from your research and I hope um, in the next few years we can see the big changes from the also policy technology and also people's awareness and actions uh, to address the biggest challenge uh, our human uh, being <laughs> facing in this century. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me on, and I hope so. I hope we do um, transition quickly, and yeah. we, we can go on to other problems to solve. Yeah. <laughs>